Welcome to episode number 125, The Demons That Surround Us. I am your host, Damon Soka. As I have discussed frequently in these podcasts, during the Savior's short mortal ministry, he spent his time mostly among those, as he stated it, needing a physician. Certainly, he spent time with other individuals and in other places, but it seems from what we have written that he spent a great deal of time tending to souls and bodies among the afflicted. We have recordings in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon of healings of paralytics, those with illnesses and disease, blind, deaf, dumb, and even those individuals whose sinful life led to broken bodies and broken dreams. A few of those recorded healings and events note the Savior interacting with some of Lucifer's fallen followers. Now, I do not particularly like talking about Lucifer and those who followed him, but from the proper perspective, it's an important topic for mental illness. Because of my own experiences and those of others with whom I have spoken or read accounts, Lucifer does appear to have a greater access to individuals suffering from mental illness. Now, this should really come as no surprise to anyone. Lucifer is wont to exploit weakness. He waits until we are starving for food or attention. He waits for us to be tired and weak. He knows that the mind's resistance and the soul's ability to fight his meddling in our lives is much weaker when the body is weak and the mind is tired. He also has greater access when we are depressed, anxious, manic, or any number of the major symptoms of our mental illnesses. Almost every form and symptom of mental illness causes us to be weakened to the influences of Lucifer and to those who support his cause. For this reason, it is important to understand some of the interactions that the Savior had with Lucifer's followers during his sojourn among men, including Lucifer himself. Now, we learned some things about these devil's angels that we can actually use in our own fight. Our first look at these beings comes from the Savior and Lucifer himself as they interacted after he had or during his completion of his 40-day fast. Uh, we refer to the incident between Lucifer and the Savior at the beginning of his mission as the temptations of Christ. This is like not likely the only temptation Christ faced during his ministry, but the only recorded ones we know of. The interaction is found in Matthew. It is important to use the Joseph Smith translation when you review these particular scriptures. The 40-day fast was a spiritual preparation for the Savior before his earthly mission started. We are not told much about it, except that he communed with his Father. The scriptures do note that the Spirit had taken him places and taught him, and then it appears that Satan intervened after those teaching moments. This is one of the corrections Joseph Smith added. The Savior faced three interesting temptations that Lucifer uses regularly with everyone, but are particularly important to those of us who face mental illness. The temptations each were about pride and really natural man behaviors. Each of the temptations start with or contain the word if, something of which we should take note, especially because of a particular weakness mental illness causes to occur, which is doubt. The word if connotates doubt and self-doubt, or questions or self-worth in each case. Lucifer basically states, if you are who you say you are, then prove it. Or if you have felt and received a testimony, prove it. This is one of the first things to know about Lucifer and his angels. Almost everything they do starts with doubt. Lucifer will attempt to get you to question deeply held beliefs. 
but he does not do so when we have our defenses attuned to his attacks. He waits for moments of vulnerability. He waits for mental illness episodes to begin and to gain speed, and then uses the change in emotional stability to his advantage. Now, we see this regularly in the lives of those around us, and we even see some of that in the Savior's life. Even upon the cross, when the Savior was finishing the work of the Father and would literally overcome Lucifer, he is at the point of death, having been through Gethsemane, sleepless night, scourging, cruel beatings, and terrible insults. Lucifer, through the mouth of the Jewish leadership, cast doubt again in the Savior's face. This is at the moment he is completing the atonement. These are truly Lucifer's words, although stated specifically by Jewish leadership. Quote, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. That's the end of the quote. Lucifer's first approach is to cause doubt. And when that doubt begins to envelop in the mind, then in the wake of the doubt, he calls for proof. And not just proof whenever that witness comes. He wants immediate proof. So it is not uncommon that while we suffer in our mental distress, that suddenly doubt appears on the horizon, both from our illness and from Lucifer's pressure. Lucifer takes advantage of our weakened state of mind brought about by the symptoms of the illness. And when our illness causes us to feel depressed, anxious, and even mania-like, and doubt our very core beliefs, Lucifer doubles down on his rhetoric. So not are we just facing normal doubt in our lives, anxiety and disbelief that comes from our illness. We face Lucifer's increased pressures, especially where we are doubting about critical and fundamental beliefs. Now I realize that doesn't seem fair in many senses, allowing Lucifer to further stir self-doubt and misbelief when we are already vulnerable and feeling lost. But it is demonstrated in the scriptures that he possesses the when he possesses the opportunity he will interject all kinds of doubt about every facet of our lives. The purpose is not for us to ask questions and learn, but for us to fail. He wants us to give into his doubt and ask for immediate proof. And when it does not come, he will claim victory. And then he moves from doubt to teaching his own principles. Once we've failed to obtain demonstrable proof, not really for ourselves, but out of his request, he can then begin a re-education process. Now, because doubt causes confusion, he will use this moment of confusion to slowly alter what we believe and feel, interjecting not outright lies, although he will do so if he can get us to believe it, but additions of falsehood mixed with truth. He does not need us to follow pure evil. He simply needs us to stray far enough away from our core beliefs that we will have sufficient difficulty returning to the covenant path. The first objective is just to get us out of the path, and a sufficient distance from that path. He knows that if he does not cut us off from the Spirit of the Lord, we are likely to return. And so he must slowly lead us from the Spirit and off in subtle directions. Now to add to Lucifer's agenda, what we can also note about him is that he does know us very well from the pre-mortal life. We do not know everything about what happened with him in pre-mortality, but we do know that he was an angel in the presence of God. Now, this appears to mean that he possessed some type of authority to teach and direct, although the exact extent isn't exactly noted. We also know that he did attempt to become our Savior, offering himself 
conditionally to the Father, meaning that he would accept the Savior's role only under certain selfish conditions. That, and it really truly revealed his intent. We must have quali- he must have qualified in some aspects for this role as the Savior. Otherwise, he would have been rejected outright. We also know that he was a very persuasive leader. As he converted one-third of the host of Heavenly Father's children to support him in his attempt to ascend to the throne of the Father, really overthrow the Father. Now, given just this small information about him, one can surmise that he was a talented leader with a significant skill set. This means simply that he knows us personally, just as the Savior does. He is aware of our weaknesses and strength, both spiritually and mortally. Because of this knowledge, Lucifer is able to pick and choose those weaknesses to exploit, and he can do so with precision, and when our resistance is at its weakest point. Again, what he does doesn't sound very fair in the eternal scheme of testing, and using not only his knowledge of our premortal weaknesses, but also our mortal and physical and mental weaknesses, he is actually able to pinpoint exactly how to exploit us. If he were not bound, in some fashion, based on our beliefs in Christ, our covenants, and the mercies of the Atonement, I am not certain there would be very many individuals who would be exalted. So yes, when we talk about Lucifer, there is a counterbalancing force that comes with Lucifer's dominion. Lucifer is actually bound by rules that he is forced to acknowledge and to obey. If we ask for protection and do our best to obey the voice of the Lord, certain protections from Lucifer exist for us as members of the church and believers in Christ. Lucifer cannot go beyond certain bounds when he has, even when he has the knowledge and the ability to do so. Our covenants, interestingly enough, come with a set of protections based on our obedience and really asking for that protection. Nephi states this rule rather explicitly and succinctly when he says that He is going to go and do what the Lord commands, for he knows that the Lord prepares the way for us to be obedient. This prepared way are the protections we need from the forces of evil that Lucifer attempts to bring into our lives. This does not mean that the Lord can provide complete protection from all the many tornadoes of the spiritually dark demons. But what it does mean is that even if we get caught in one of these tornadoes, the landing will will be much softer. So while he does not protect us from every temptation so that we do not sin, he does provide for learning, forgiveness, and really a chance to return to him. Meaning that even when Lucifer comes to cause doubt, mistrust, and eventual sin, instead of the difficulty stopping our progression, he can be turned from a stumbling block into a learning moment, and we can continue to move forward on the covenant path. So, as we suffer through the many ills of our mental difficulties, we should understand that Lucifer uses doubt as a means to dislodge from us the truth. He knows that during our episodes, we struggle to hear the Spirit, and so his initial attack upon us will cause us to doubt the many truths we have learned. He generally does not attempt to attack us where we are strong in our testimony. He will start where we are weakest in the gospel and then move towards our strengths, slowly breaking us down in the process. The assault will occur as he causes us to doubt if we really did hear the Spirit, if we really do have a testimony of the law of chastity, the law of tithing, the word of wisdom, and so forth. And then comes 
exactly the moment Christ faced. Lucifer says, prove it. Our doubts will cause us to feel deeply that we need immediate proof, and so begins the difficulties that lead us away from the Savior. This feeling of needed proof comes as part of our mortal system. It is a natural man tendency to question past events. In order to remain to remember spiritually these witnessing events, we must again feel the same spiritual witness. This consistent witness is one of the many roles of the spirit. One of the many purposes of that spirit is to bring to remembrance those doctrines that we have learned and also to recall the witness that we once felt. Both the knowledge and the witness are necessary for us, but the natural man tends to live within our current emotional states and not in past ones. And mortal bodies are attuned to the physical, meaning we tend to seek miracles to justify our belief. And so recalling past spiritual witnesses can be a process. That is why we consistently do small things to maintain the spirit and witnesses within us. But even then, when illness strikes and we are weak, we recalling spiritual witnesses can feel impossible and be very difficult. We begin to feel that maybe we never really felt the Spirit. How do we even know what we know to be true? And why do I feel so bad when I'm doing the things I should? And a million other concerns, questions, and, of course, doubts. Lucifer then, of course, does something interesting. Doubt causes questions to occur in the mind. Questions can be both good and bad, depending on how we approach them or approach finding the answer. However, Lucifer does not desire us to find the correct answer or the truth. So his initial prove it immediately most often comes with a prove it now. If you can't prove it now, then what you thought to be true cannot be. The timing element is actually incredibly important to Lucifer. If we are allowed time to truly work through the process of finding truth, and we are sincere, then the promise is that we will find it. But it takes time. Lucifer cannot afford or grant us this time for us to work through it because he would fail. So what he does is to make us believe that if we cannot feel truth right now, then what we have learned must be wrong. This is somewhat akin to the idea, if I'm not happy right now, then the gospel must not be true because I should be happy living the gospel. Lucifer wants to twist the truth just enough and cast just enough doubt for us to act, but not so much difficulty that we really search. He needs us to believe in the half-truth, because the half-truth is far easier to digest mentally than the outright lie, and far e more difficult to dislodge from the brain. So the final part of his strategy is to say, of course, certain of your beliefs are true. You are just a little wrong in your approach. Let me help let me help you see your error by causing doubt where you are weak. Keep your strength. I'll get those in time. All I need is your weaknesses and some doubt with this immediate timing. All I need is for you to stray from the path a little at a time. And I can increase the doubt and the immediacy of the response. So many of the difficulties we face living in the gospel actually fall into this method methodology especially when we are suffering through episodes of mental illness. Now, there are some other things to note about the forces of evil that inherit this planet, and we get some of this from an episode with 
Lucifer's angels in Christ. Now, the instance I'm going to talk about was a case of possession of the mortal body by those who follow Lucifer. And before we get too far into this episode, we need to discuss possession by devils. There exists some rules to possession, at least in the sense that the devil that devils inherit a body more permanently. First of all, there is a matter of consent. For the most part, devils are not able to enter mortal bodies without the consent of the individual. This rule was in place from the days of Adam. Now, consent does not always mean that the individual is worshiping Satan and allows for it directly. Often these types of consent can occur when serious evil is being contemplated and accomplished or if other types of mind-altering chemicals or drugs are used, meaning that when we do things outside of the bounds of our covenants, we are inviting Lucifer. And I personally believe that possession happens the same way we fall off the covenant path, just a little at a time. Second, there is the matter of the mortal body. And the increasing control devils have upon the mortal body as we succumb to them. It is noteworthy that devils, given the opportunity and consent, can fully take over the mortal body, almost completely. Now that leads us to this first encounter, an interaction of the Savior with a possessed mortal. This is not likely his first experience, of course, but the first one in the scriptures that I will discuss. It is found in more than one gospel, but I'm actually going to use Mark 5. The Savior had passed over the sea to Gadenares, and the possessed man came out of the tombs to meet him. There are some things to note about this encounter and the devils. First, they were many, meaning that more than a few devils inherited the body. Now, whether they did so one at a time or all at once, we aren't exactly told. Second, the devils had no intention of living a normal, happy, mortal life. They wanted chaos, pain, and suffering. Third, they immediately recognized the Savior, and they worshiped the Savior, which means that they recognized his authority. Fourth, when they were commanded to come out of the man, they did not do so immediately, but strongly resisted, asking that they be not tormented by leaving the man's body. It is interesting that they consider a life without a mortal body, or without a body, torture. They did this for some time, actually arguing with the Savior. Finally, in a last gasp of desperation, they asked to be sent into a herd of swine, preferring the swine's body to being without a body. Well, what do we learn of value from this particular experience? The desperate and determined nature of the demons to inherit a body, even temporarily. Their knowledge of Christ and the pre-mortal world, they would not have known him otherwise. Their desire to match their current pain and suffering, having been cast out from heaven. We actually see this in the suffering they cause the mortal man by cuttings and other means to cause him pain. Their contempt and their argumentative nature, even when told to come out of the possessed man by the Savior himself. Finally, the idea of consent, because they could not enter the swine without the Savior's consent to do so. So why is all of this important to those of us who suffer? We can see the nature of these beings and their desire and their desperation for misery, even when inheriting a body for a short time. There is no happiness or joy, or even an attempt to live a life. When they have a body, that body is used to vent their sufferings and frustrations. They are miserable, and by that very nature they desire the misery of anyone who is near them, 
and they will do anything to create that misery. We can also note by this experience that the protection, protections that Christ affords when he intervenes in our lives. Once cast out, the devils were unable to return to the man's mortal body, meaning that a barrier of some kind had been established by Christ, where even these rebellious spirits could not go. While everything we learn about the encounter is important, the most important in our lives is this barrier provided by Christ against these angels bent on our destruction. If one were to truly consider the feelings and emotional status of someone in a full-blown episode of depression, anxiety, or perhaps even mania, it is easy to see how devils could regularly inherit mortal bodies. But we do not see it as frequently as would be expected. And so the conclusion must be that through the atonement we are afforded mercies and protection when we are most vulnerable to Lucifer's attacks. I personally believe that this protection varies according to our obedience to the gospel and our susceptibility to deep episodes, meaning that if we do what we can to remain within the covenants we have made, the Lord provides for our protection, even during our weakest moments. That protection only wanes or diminishes when we walk sufficiently distant from the covenant path. But the Lord, in his mercy, allows this protection to remain until the very last moment that he can, meaning that it generally remains even when we sin, if we quickly return to the covenant path. It is when our sins continue without repentance for a period of time that the Lord reluctantly must allow justice to take its effect upon us, withdrawing his spirit according to our lack of diligence. Now, the conclusions we can draw from the Savior's interactions with demons that surround us are very important to our illness. First, we, shouldn't expect doubt, we should expect doubt to increase dramatically during our illness, as Lucifer exploits the symptoms and effects of a weakened body and spirit. Second, we should expect those feelings of immediate proof, and Lucifer casting doubt upon our past experiences which means we are likely going to feel very lost and confused. Third, we should expect that we will desire immediate proof or even a certain type of proof that what we believe is true. Fourth, we should also expect Lucifer to cast further doubt when we make attempts at proving our testimony, or better said, forcing a witness of the truth. Fifth, we should expect that Lucifer will attack portions of our testimony that are weak, still growing or have not been developed, to slowly deviate us from the covenant path. And sixth, we should try to understand the mercies of the atonement and the protections our covenants afford us, especially when our weakness, illness weakens our resolve. We should understand the boundaries of Lucifer and avoid the immediacy trap. The Lord is always willing to witness to us, but not generally when Lucifer has demanded it. The Lord desires to witness, to teach and inspire us, and he will do so under his time frame and according to his wisdom and how we need that witness, not according to the demands of an imposter. Finally, when these episodes come, and they will, and we are deep into our difficulties, we should know and understand just how much protection the Lord affords us and rely upon that protection and be patient when desiring a further witness of the truth. The witness will always come, but according to the Lord's timing. May the Lord bless you, and may, he find, may you find protection in your covenants and in your loyalty 
to the one true God. And as always, do your part so that the Lord can do his. Until next week.